You are listening to Thick Thighs and Murder Vibes, a true crime podcast. Join us as we uncover untold pieces of the puzzle to give you all the dark and juicy details. Each episode will take you down the rabbit hole as we dive deep into real-life murders, unsolved mysteries, and sinister crimes. This podcast does contain explicit content and graphic descriptions. Listener discretion is strongly advised. You guys, it's week three and we are doing something a little different this week. Instead of one big story, we are going to give you a few short stories. Fuck yeah, we are. Um, I don't know about you, but I for one am so excited for this week's episode. It's not only true crime, but a little bit of morbid history as well. So, Tara, how did you come up with the idea to do this fun episode this week? Well... So my parents are always giving me ideas for episodes because, you know, they're so supportive. And my dad and I got to talking last week at dinner about how when I was a kid, he would tuck me in and tell me bedtime stories, sing me nursery rhymes. I remember my dad telling me his version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, where Goldie would eat all the bears' food, clog their toilet, (laughs) and then, of course sleep in their beds and when the bears would come home to find her sleeping they would kill her and eat her i know (laughs) who tells their kid that shit but i loved it and it made me laugh (laughs) but it did remind me that nursery rhymes and fairy tales weren't always so sweet but in fact most of them were made up of real life events or written as sinister stories not recommended for children for instance the song ring around the rosy is actually about the black plague But as children, we love to hold hands and run in a circle singing the seemingly innocent song before falling to the ground, not realizing what the words actually meant. Ring around the rosy referred to the red rings of rashes you would get from the fever. Pocketful of posies referred to the flowers that were placed in the pockets of the dead to cover up the smell of rotting flesh, which is the most amazing scent I hear. Ashes, ashes, because they would burn the bodies. And of course, we all fall down, symbolizing death or dying. Because why wouldn't you turn that event into a catchy song for kids? Right. (laughs) So now, not all nursery rhymes are about plague either, but some are about kidnapping and murder, which leads me to the question Shayna, do you know the Muffin Man? The Muffin Man? The Muffin Man. Who lives on Drury Lane? That's the one. (laughs) Well, it just so happens that there are many versions of this horrifying story. The Muffin Man, also known as the Drury Lane Dicer, was the first known serial killer in England. His name was Frederick Thomas Linwood, and he was born in 1563 and died in 1612. There are many accounts of Linwood's crimes, however, no surviving records. This is either one hell of a folklore story or one of history's most creepy mysteries. In Victorian England, it was common for families to have fresh foods delivered to their homes. If you're in the U.S., imagine the milkman from the 1950s. Same deal. Every morning, Victorian families would expect to find a parcel of bread for that day's meal. A popular morning meal was muffins. But these were more like English muffins and less like the sugary American muffins. So probably not as good. (laughs) 
The Muffin Man would make his deliveries just like other bakers, but he would lure children away from their homes by playfully tying a string to a muffin and pulling it away from the steps where the parcels lay. The kids, likely thinking this was a fun game, would chase the muffins, which led to the Muffin Man's bakery, where he would kill the children, but not before torturing them. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) The Muffin Man did not appreciate the fierce competition in his surrounding neighborhoods, so he murdered seven other bakers. (laughs) He murdered Chef Randall by drowning him in brownie powder. (laughs) He murdered Chef William, beaten with a shoe. Chef Carver was shot with a matchlock musket. Chef George was flattened with a pin, which I assume this means beaten with a rolling pin. (laughs) Chef David was cooked to a golden brown. Chef Aaron was shaked and baked. And (laughs) Chef Adam, he, well, he was stabbed to death. (laughs) The life of a baker in Victorian England was not lucrative or pleasant. For starters, everyone wanted bread delivered. The middle class could afford to have fresh food delivered to their homes. And during various times of the year, bread deliveries would skyrocket. However, the bakers did not have giant electric mixers and most could not afford to hire staff. So bakers did all the hard work themselves, which meant that their daily shifts would begin around 10 or 11 at night, leaving the only time for sleep during the moments when the dough was rising. Working under such strenuous circumstances commonly meant that the quality of bread was a (laughs) crapshoot. For example, some bakers had to double time to keep up with their orders and knead the dough with their feet, Mm. which is absolutely (laughs) disgusting. Foot bread. I fucking hate feet. (laughs) Sour toe, not sour dough. (laughs) The muffin man. The Muffin Man seemed to have taken pleasure in taunting and torturing children before he killed them. And according to stories, he used wooden spoons to knock children out. However, experts have long cast doubt that the wooden spoon would be enough to render a person unconscious. (laughs) Still, the story persists. Between the years 1589 and 1598, Linwood murdered 15 children. His shop was a popular spot for kids to visit, where they would run and cause chaos. What unsupervised kid wouldn't run around a bakery? Supposedly, Linwood wanted them to stay away from his shop, so he devised a vicious plan. He lured children intentionally to his shop by pulling that muffin on a string, and once inside, he would knock them out and then kill them by boiling them in large cauldrons. Like a witch. Yes. (laughs) Children came up with a catchy rhyme to sing as a warning to other children to stay away and to be weary of those around them, and thus the Muffin Man nursery rhyme was born. But it's not all about killer bakers. Royal bloodlines also play a role in nursery rhymes, such as Mary Mary, quite contrary. Mary Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. This is an English nursery rhyme, the rhyme has been seen as having religious and historical significance, but its origins and meaning are disputed. The rhyme might be about Bloody Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII, and her murder of the Protestants. Some say that the garden is a reference to the graveyards that were filling with 
martyred Protestants under her reign, while the silver bells represent thumbscrews and cockle shells are instruments of torture attached to male genitals. <laughs> Let's not forget about those pretty maids. They could be referring to the people lined up to be executed. Also, Three Blind Mice is supposedly yet another ode to Bloody Mary's reign with the trio in question believed to be a group of Protestant bishops, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Radley, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, who conspired to overthrow the Queen and were burned at the stake for their heresy. Three blind mice, three blind mice. See how they run? See how they run. They all ran after the farmer's wife, who cut off their tails with a carbine knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as three blind mice? That's really, doesn't make too much sense. No, I rhyme. Yeah, I don't really see how that would really. Honestly, the only correlation there is the three Protestant bishops and then there's three blind mice. Mm -hmm. But it's really the only thing that I see that it could be. (laughs) All right. Another nursery rhyme with a royal background is Rockabye Baby. Even at face value, this rhyme about a falling baby comes across as upbeat and one of the sweetest sounding songs we hear as a child. But looking at the words themselves without any melody or gentle tune, the song is seemingly morbid and odd. Many believe that the first appearance of the rhyme and lullaby occurred in 1765 in Mother Goose's Melody, which was then reprinted in Boston in 1785. While no copies of the first edition are known, a 1791 edition has the following lyrics. Hushabye baby on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Down tumbles baby, cradle and all. In that publication, the rhyme is accompanied by the note. This may serve as a warning to the proud and ambitious who climb so high that they generally fall at last. The modern lyrics that were published in 1805 changed hush to rock, giving us the rockabye baby lullaby we all know today. Yeah, I love that one. (laughs) But some say it is really about King James II of England, who, in a bid to produce a Catholic heir and resist the wind blowing from Protestantism, supposedly smuggled another man's child into the birthing chamber. If he did, the plan didn't work. Like the cradle, the house of Stuart was doomed to fall. He's a baby snatcher. He is a baby snatcher. All right. Well, we can't forget about Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. The original nursery rhyme goes like this. Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a wife but couldn't keep her. Put her in a pumpkin shell, and there he kept her very well. Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had another and didn't love her. Peter learned to read and spell, and then he loved her very well. The true meaning behind this rhyme is actually very ominous. The implication of the first stanza that Peter murdered his first wife because she tried to leave the marriage. It was believed that Peter's wife was a prostitute and that Peter was tired of his wife's extracurricular activities. So he murdered her and hid her body in a pumpkin. Where do you find a pumpkin that big? (laughs) Alternatively, it could be that the pumpkin shell is a metaphor for the brothel where Peter kept his wife prisoner and sold her body. The second wife story is less well known, as most people only know the first part of the song, 
but we can imagine her fate was equally as sinister. Not only do our nursery rhymes have dark meanings behind them, but even some of our favorite childhood books, movies, and even TV shows come from a dark place. For example, Rumpelstiltskin. The title character is a mysterious gnome-like man who spins straw into gold for the benefit of a beautiful miller's daughter in exchange for her future firstborn child. The little man reappears to demand his payment when the young woman, now the queen, bears her first child. Okay, but why does Rumpelstiltskin want a baby? It seems that he has no need for wealth because of his knack of creating gold out of straw, but he can't make a life with his magic. So he's desperately lonely and craves companionship, a baby to care for, someone to be grateful to him and to take care of him in return, like children and parents' love for each other. So sweet (laughs) and sad. He's lonely and creepy. The lonely spinster. The lonely spinster. (laughs) Variants of this fairy tale have been told for more than a thousand years, but these days it's the Brothers Grimm version of Rumpelstiltskin, which is read to children all over the world, and this one has a far more cheerful ending than many of the versions that went before it. The story involves an ambitious miller who boasts to the king that his daughter can weave straw into gold. The greedy king believes him and locks the young girl up in a tower overnight. She is told that if she doesn't produce gold by the next morning, she will lose her head. An imp appears and offers to help. In return for her necklace, he will make the gold. So, naturally, the king just gets greedier, promising to marry the girl if she fulfills his wishes. The imp also demands more and more, finally landing on her firstborn child. Sure enough, the miller's daughter becomes queen, and when her first child is born, the imp demands to take it away. The new mother refuses, as one would. After much argument, the imp gives her one last deal. Only if she can guess his name will she be able to keep the baby. In the Brothers Grimm version of 1812, the queen hears the imp singing while she's out walking in the woods, and she learns his name is Rumpelstiltskin. When he returns the next day, she passes the test. Though angry, the imp just runs away, never to be seen again. But in other versions, he doesn't take losing quite so well. Most infamously, One version states that Rumpelstiltskin is so angry he stamps one foot right through the castle floor. He then grabs his other leg and literally rips himself in half in front of the queen and her baby. He just like little baby hulks himself (laughs) right in front of her. Just right in half. (laughs) Why don't I remember that version? I don't remember that (laughs) version. I, I feel like that would definitely be one that I would remember. Yeah. I don't remember ever hearing that second one. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> then we have the story of Little Red. According to historians, the origins of Little Red Riding Hood can be traced back as far as the 10th century. And like the other stories, there were a number of different versions told in different countries. While the plot details might have varied, the overall theme was the same. A young girl, named for her magical red-hooded cloak, is stalked by a wolf as she goes to visit her grandmother. The cunning wolf recommends that she pick some flowers for her grandmother. Then, when the girl is distracted, he runs ahead to the grandmother's cottage to lie in wait for his young prey. In most versions of the tale, the wolf eats the grandmother whole. 
He then dresses in her bonnet and waits in her bed. Little Red Riding Hood is tricked into believing the wolf is her elderly relative and joins him in bed, where she is also eaten. Most famously, in the widely read version written by Charles Perrault and published in 1692, there is no happy ending. Nobody comes to rescue her and cut her from the wolf's stomach. What's even more disturbing, in Perrault's version, the girl strips naked before getting into bed, and the wolf serves Little Red pieces of her own grandmother to eat. Okay. <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood had nudity? I guess. Because, like, why wouldn't you strip naked while getting into bed with your grandmother? I mean, I never did that. But <laughs> to each their own, I guess. I did play the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood when we did it Aww. as the performance when I was in, like, first grade, but I never got naked with Aww. nobody. Well, that's where you went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. I don't know. I'm kind of fucked up as an adult, so. Maybe you're just blocking it out. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, while we are on the topic of family stories, we are brought to Hansel and Gretel. As dark as it is, the story features some abandonment, attempted cannibalism, enslavement, and murder. Unfortunately, the origins of the story are equally, if not more horrifying. Most people are familiar with this story, but for those who aren't, it opens on a pair of children who are to be abandoned by their starving parents in the forest. The kids, Hansel and Gretel, get wind of their parents' plan and find their way home by following a trail of stones Hansel has dropped earlier. The mother, or stepmother, by some tellings, convinces the father to abandon the children a second time. This time, Hansel drops breadcrumbs to follow home, but birds eat the breadcrumbs and the children become lost in the forest. The starving pair come up upon a gingerbread house that they begin to eat ravenously. Unbeknownst to them, the home is actually a trap set by an old witch, or ogre, who enslaves Gretel and forces her to overfeed Hansel so that he can be eaten by the witch. The pair manage to escape when Gretel shoves the witch into an oven they return home with the witch's treasure and find that their evil matriarch is no longer there and is presumed dead. So they live happily ever after. <laughs> but the true story behind the tale of Hansel and Gretel is not as happy as this ending. The real history behind this already rather grim story is even more grim. The true story of Hansel and Gretel may have its roots in the Great Flood and Great Famine of 1314. 1314 was a year of continuous rain, and this continued through 1316. The wet conditions resulted in crops rotting in the ground, harvests failing, and livestock drowning or starving. Food prices increased dramatically as a result of severe food shortages. The Great Famine is estimated to have affected 400,000 square miles of Europe, 30 million people, and to have resulted in the deaths of up to 25% of the population in certain areas. Dang. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So famine was so bad during the winter of 1315 and 1316 that peasants resorted to eating the seed grain they had stored for planting in the spring. People resorted to begging, stealing, and even murder in their quest for food. Parents would abandon their children to fend for themselves, and there were rumors of cannibalism. An Irish chronicler wrote that people were so destroyed by hunger that they extracted bodies of the dead from uh -huh. cemeteries 
and dug out the flesh from the skull and ate it. Yikes. And women would eat their children out of hunger. In the story of Hansel and Gretel, the pair are taken into the forest by their father and abandoned. They are taken in by an old woman living in a cottage who turns out to be an evil witch and enslaves Gretel. The witch forces Gretel to feed Hansel so that he may grow big for the witch to eat. When the witch starts to heat the oven, the children realize her plan, and Gretel tricks the woman into opening the oven and pushes her inside before she can eat Hansel. They return home, and their mother dies shortly after. Another grim tale along the lines of Hansel and Gretel is a Romanian story called The Little Boy and the Wicked Stepmother, which pretty much has the same storyline, forces the dad to get rid of his sister. They end up finding their way back home, and the dad is out hunting or working, and the stepmother forces the daughter to kill her brother and cook him and then feed him to the family. Why is it always an evil stepmother? (laughs) You know... I am a stepmother, and I feel like I am not evil. No, you're definitely not. I would hope I'm not evil anyways. No No way. But it is. It always is. We have Cinderella, evil Mm -hmm. stepmother. I believe Snow White, the witch. Yeah, Snow White. Yeah, the witch is her her stepmother stepmother in the Disney version. Rapunzel, it's not her stepmother, but she's kidnapped by that crazy lady. Yeah. It's always the stepmothers. Man. Fucking stepmoms. So just for a little bonus, I found something on the Smurfs. The Smurfs. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I loved the Smurfs as a kid. And even as an adult, I was shocked to find the dark symbolism behind it. I had no idea there was a story behind it. I I, thought it was just a kid's movie. Yeah, I had no idea either. And then I found this article while I was looking up other stuff for this case or this week and came across this little thing on the Smurfs. So just a little bonus. But as we all know, the Smurfs are a fictional colony of little blue human-like creatures that live in mushroom-shaped houses in the forest. The Germans believed that the tale was much darker than what is shown on TV. So the way Smurfs reproduce is they lure children into snowdrifts and the children fall into these snowdrifts and die. Yikes. (laughs) When spring comes, the bodies are found and under the bodies are mushrooms. The Smurf village is where the children fall over dead and their blue skin is because they are all frozen. They turn blue and they mock the children by wearing white hats that indicate the snow that killed the child. This is way darker (laughs) than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. Also, you guys remember Gargamel, the evil guy? Well, contrary to popular belief, Gargamel was a good German sorcerer who was trying to rescue the children from the Smurfs. If that's not enough, it's also believed that Papa Smurf was the devil, and that explains why not only he's the leader, but also has a five-pointed star that looks like a pentagram carved into his chair, Oh, and the only Smurf that wears red. So, yeah, that's what I have on the Smurfs. I don't know how true it is, because again, it's just what... The Germans believe, and it's just that short little excerpt there, but the Germans always have the best stories. They do. 
that's all we have for you this week. Thank you all so much for listening and for all the support you've given us. Remember, you can like and follow us on Facebook under Thick Thighs and Murder Vibes Community. If you have any suggestions for episodes or a case you were dying to hear, you can message us on Facebook under the group page or email us directly at thickthighsmurdervibes at gmail.com. That's T-H-I-C-K-T-H-I-G-H-S-M-U-R-D-E-R-V-I-B-E-S at gmail.com. And come back next week for Slain Education. Bye! Bye.